23, verses 32 to 47. This is part of the crucifixion of Jesus, an interesting contrast to what you've just heard. It's on page 1059 of the Church Bibles, Luke 23, 32 to 47. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him. There, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine, vinegar, and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Then the centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have opened our eyes to the Lord Jesus. We thank you for your word. And Father, as we reflect on this major worldview of reality and compare it to what it means to know you through Christ, Father, open our eyes to see clearly Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, why not Buddhism? It's a good question to ask, I think. Um, There's no doubt this, you might say, is one of the trendy religions in kind of Western thinking. And it's come to notoriety because a number of kind of famous identities, particularly Hollywood, uh, even sporting identities, um, are seen to be Buddhist. Now, there's one, Richard Gere, uh, well-known Buddhist. Uh, Orlando Bloom practices a particular type uh, of Buddhism. Um, This one may surprise you. Tiger Woods um, borrows from Buddhism. I wrote in my notes, I think he's still working on the ethics part, but anyway. (laughs) Rock star Tina Turner, famously coupled with the NRL. Sports stars, Brett Kirk, Paul Ruse, former coach also, uh, practicing Buddhist. Um, It's a kind of trendy religion. And I think it's particularly uh, that way because it's kind of 
a religion people think you can kind of cherry pick and just kind of take ideas from it and just kind of incorporate it uh, into your life. And it's worth asking the question, um, what's not to like? Um, If I can say from a kind of surface reading, uh, it does look appealing. And I think if you're one of those people who have got no religion and you look on, you think, well, Buddhists, I haven't met a bad Buddhist. They're typically very lovely people, uh, peaceful, compassion. Um, It speaks of gaining wisdom, eradicating suffering. What's to disagree with that? Um, Seems very appealing. And it's interesting, in Australia, uh, Buddhism is the fastest growing religion. Now, those figures are between 2001 and 2011. Uh, The 2016 census obviously is going to take place this year. But 48% growth in Buddhism. Now, at one level, from an absolute number, not massive, only 2.5% of the population, but from a relative point of view, incredible growth. Now, part of that, no doubt, is because of immigration of people from Southeast Asia to Australia. Uh, But it's probably more than that at one level, that people are saying, I think I like some of this stuff. And I want to just start by saying, well, what's commendable in Buddhism? And that's a good question to ask. And I say that because whenever you look at things, you don't want to just point out what you think you disagree with. You actually want to try and find where's the common ground uh, and start from there. And there's a couple of things worth noting in terms of what's commendable. Um, It rightly understands that there's a universal problem with humanity. And you saw there on the video the journey that Siddhartha Gautama made. He left the palace with all of its trappings and went out and was confronted by poverty in India. And rather than just returning back to the palace, he thought there must be an answer to this. But what struck him, and this is his first noble truth, suffering exists. He he didn't want to walk away from it and kind of hide from it. He wanted to confront it and have some sort of solution for it. Now, that's a very commendable place to be. And we as Christians would want to say, yes, it is a universal problem that there is suffering and incredible need in this world. Uh, The second noble truth was this, the origin of suffering is desire. Now, I would want to say, look, amen to that, but in a qualified way. And I say that because, uh, if I can say at a surface level, we would want to say, yes, human desire is the root cause of all kinds of evils. And suffering does result. And we would want to, if I can use the language of sin, uh, that we are selfish in our natural outlook and bent in life, that we've got a sinful nature that causes us to desire in ways that are wrong. But when you kind of dig deeper in terms of understanding what Siddhartha Gautama taught about suffering, basically all of life is suffering in a far more profound way than what I would want to say the Bible teaches. But I do want to say, uh, I think he's absolutely right, human desire is a root cause for human suffering. Now what he went on to say though is, the end of suffering is by the elimination of desire. And we're going to come to that. Uh, And when you hear nirvana, I think in the Western world, the concept of nirvana is kind of this state of bliss and happiness. Uh, And we would think of it in terms of physicality. You know, nirvana is going to, you know, unspoiled beach, fruit to eat. That is not the picture of nirvana in Buddhism. We'll come to that. But you see, to reach nirvana, you have to eliminate desire. And what he said was, uh, uh, which is the fourth noble truth, you need to follow the eightfold path to get to that place of nirvana. 
Suffering exists, big problem. Second, desire is the cause for it. Three, we need to eliminate desire to reach nirvana. Four, there, there's a path that you go on, personal journey, to improve yourself to get to this state of nirvana. And I want to say, when you look at the Eightfold Path, uh, there's some very positive, practical ways to live within there. Uh, and so here's the Eightfold Path. There's right understanding, right aim, right speech, right action, right work, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And I would say when you break those down, there's three kind of key areas which make up um, this kind of lifestyle for Buddhism. One is wisdom, big on that, not just knowledge but actually lived wisdom. And we'd want to affirm, yes, wisdom is to be lived, it's what Proverbs teaches. The wise person is the one who actually lives the wise life, he's worked out life under God. Secondly, there's ethical conduct, yes, amen to that, we want ethical conduct, we want people to live well uh, in this world. And then thirdly, mental discipline. Now, that's where the whole practice of meditation comes in, but I want to say what we would call meditation is on a very different page to what Buddhists would call meditation. Though, within there, there are some elements which they talk about, and even modern psychology has picked up, which they talk about mindfulness as a practice, uh, which can be very helpful. And you can take some stuff and redeem it uh, within a context of the Christian faith um, and find some use for it. But that's kind of, if I can say, um, the common ground we've got with Buddhism. We affirm, common problem. We affirm, yes, we're part of it. And we also affirm there's some helpful ways to think about life. But what I want to say is this. We need to acknowledge that there's actually a much bigger picture when it comes to Buddhism. Now, it's interesting. Um, I think one of the reasons why Westerners are intrigued by it, because they hear of ethics, compassion, they think, yeah, I'm going to take a bit of that. But I want to say you actually need to know what's underneath that and actually what that really is portraying as ultimate reality. And it's a very good question. What is ultimate reality for the Buddhist? Who are you in Buddhism? Really? They're the kind of questions we need to think through. Uh, don't just cherry-pick ideas that look nice and think, well, they'll work for me, I'll use them and I'll declare myself a Buddhist. Uh, look at the whole package. Uh, what is this worldview built upon? Now, I'm going to go through two major issues where I think you see the incredible failings of Buddhism. And if I can say that with all respect, because the Buddhists I've met are beautiful people. They really are. But at the end of the day, they're not compatible. And they would not agree with me on what I say about my worldview. They've got a very different conflicting worldview. And so we actually got to ask, what is the real version of reality? And what really is true? And how do we live as a result? Because it's the truth question we've got to engage with. Because we are not the same and it's fanciful Western, if I can say, sloppy thinking to say, well, we're kind of all similar. Yes, common ground, but actually when you dig down, profoundly different. Firstly, the question of suffering. Suffering and the causes of it in the world is one of the big questions of philosophy. And Buddhism in particular, Siddhartha Gautama, had a very unique perspective on it. And it's worth saying, if you start to read Buddhism, it's a very sophisticated philosophical analysis of reality is how I'd put it. It's very sophisticated. 
uh, you can really dig deep and think a lot about what Siddhartha Gautama taught. And as I said, in his first noble truth, he talked about the universality of suffering. As he escaped the safe confines of the palace and goes to understand, he's confronted by the very existence of suffering all around him. And it led him to develop his solution of the four noble truths. Now, where, if I can say suffering for the Buddhists is different to us, is suffering relates to the law of cause and effect, which is tied up with the whole issue of desire with humans. And one of the early kind of revelations that Siddhartha Gautama had was that everything is connected to everything in the universe. I mean, we're talking everything. We're kind of all connected by cause and effect. Actions have impacts which cause actions which have impacts. Now, at one level, in the simple law of physics, that's absolutely right. But what he said was, actually, suffering is actually a part of all of this. And so in all the actions and reactions, there is suffering. So pain is suffering, hardship is suffering, uh, the fleeting nature of existence is actually suffering. The fact that you can enjoy something and then miss it, well that's a suffering. And I was thinking, I said this to Max, I'm going on long service leave, this is my second last Sunday, I'll be here next week and then I'm gone for eight weeks. I said I can already feel I'm going to be coming home. And the whole, I go, you know that feeling of the whole day's over, I thought, oh, it's going to be over so soon. And so the Buddhists would say, well, that's suffering. Because nothing ever satisfies. There's no end to it. You see, you just, you'll experience things and then you'll want more. I'm going to talk about the Buddhist view of sex later on. It's actually very depressing. All of life is suffering even positive experiences because you see what happens is though in itself it's positive what we do is we bring our desire for it which is never sated and so you're just left dissatisfied so what have you got to do well there's two things you've got to think about the fact that the backdrop of this is karma that the law of cause and effect and everything you do will have an effect causing suffering now at a very simple level with the law of karma and cause and effect what it means is good actions result in good down the track and evil actions result in evil down the track and you don't have reincarnation that's a hindu concept because they don't believe in the soul there's just rebirth you get rebirthed according to the karma of past life now, just stop and think about that as you reflect on the question of suffering. You see, because the goal is, with the Eightfold Path, is that you'll lead such a good life that as you kind of overcome your karma, you'll eventually be reborn without any suffering. Now, here's the horrendous thing about what this means. What about the person who's born with a disability? Are you telling me that it's because of their past life? Well, actually, that's what does karma teach. That you've brought this upon yourself. Uh, what about the person who has cancer? What are you saying to me about that? Well, obviously, the law of cause and effect, they've brought this upon themselves from their past life. Uh, what about the family who's killed in a freak accident? 
Yes, they've brought this upon themselves from past life because according to the law of karma, their actions in a past life are now revisiting them. Now, unlike Hinduism, which as a result of karma has created the caste system and you are born into higher and higher castes and that is your lot in life and there is no sense of compassion of wanting to lift those up out of poverty. No, you deserve to be here if you're high caste. And you look down on those underneath you. Sadama looked at that and critiqued it and actually, no, we need to get rid of suffering. But you see the philosophical bind you're in. Are you saying my suffering is because of my past life? Now, I'm going to show you a video of a former Buddhist. He's now the Anglican Dean of the Cathedral, Kanishka Raphael. Uh, was just installed two months ago. And he's going to tell his story. But this is what he says as a former Buddhist about the law of karma. It is morally repugnant or at least morally ambiguous as it trivialises the humanness of our suffering in that the only consolation for the sufferer is that they must realise that what is happening to them now is because of a past life that they cannot remember. And he also says this, it may also induce a complacency towards fellow human beings in that it makes permissible to attribute the deprivations of the disadvantaged to their own evil behaviour in a past life. And you stop and you've got to ask the question, what sort of view on life and suffering is this? Can you live with that? I personally could never. It's not one at all that I would feel comfortable living with, let alone espousing to others. And yes, there are real questions raised by suffering with the Christian faith. Let me say, with every worldview, there is a question of suffering raised, how you deal with it. But the Christian faith proclaims a very different view on suffering. It says, with Buddhism, yes, it is a world problem. And yes, our actions contribute to some of it, but yet there's actually a bigger picture that because of the entrance of sin into the world, this is a broken place that we live in with broken people. And suffering is the experience of humanity, but it's not necessarily because of our own faults. And it's definitely not because of a past life. And you think of John chapter 9, where Jesus uh, is confronted by a blind man and his disciples ask him, the people around him, um, who, why has this man got blindness? Is it because his parents sinned? Something he did? And he says, no, neither. You see, it is not because of a past life that supposedly may have happened. There is, if I can just say, a reality that we live in a broken world and suffering will affect us not necessarily because of anything we've done. But more than that, the Christian faith says God is not distant from this, but rather he enters into our suffering and into this broken world in the person of his son who left, if I can say, his cast of glory and lowered himself in humility and as the one who was righteous and deserving of all eternal rewards, rather took upon the sins of the world and suffered and died. And that famous cry at the cross, which we just had read to us, is so profoundly different to the Buddhist solution. Our salvation was won by 
a man suffering and dying who was proclaimed as surely this man was righteous. Well, that's firstly the question of suffering. Secondly, and it gets even more depressing, the question of God and ultimate reality. Now, what you may have grasped about Buddhism by now is that they have a very different concept of ultimate reality in the question of God. And Siddhartha Gautama, as I said, um, his ideas came because he actually rejected Hinduism. And so he was having that as the backdrop, if I can say, from a philosophical point of view, and he's trying to work out, actually, now this is not working. Uh, This is what I think is reality. And so where does God fit in? Well, firstly, in Hinduism, all living souls possess a soul, all living beings. So we have a soul. And it's kind of, they they would teach, um, we all have a sense of the divine spark as souls, which are connected to the eternal reality of Brahman. And so there's a divineness to life that we're all connected into in kind of this way, and so you get reincarnated. Siddhartha Gautama rejected this idea completely. And he regarded teaching about God or ultimate reality and the soul as pure guesswork and completely irrelevant. So he didn't actually think we have a soul at all. He was what you might call a practical atheist. Uh, In essence, that's what Buddhism is. There is no God there over you. Uh, There's no God in you. There is no God. And so life is just this circle of life. And they talk about that's a phrase from Buddhism, the circle of life. Very different to the Christian faith, which talks about actually, no, there's a progression to life. That's what history is. And there's a final day for life, which is when judgment comes. And we look forward to that with the new creation. So the Christian faith does not proclaim a cycle that just never ends, but rather a progression towards a goal, which is history, when the Lord Jesus returns. But what about us, human existence? So in that context that there's no soul, there's no God, who am I and who are you? What Siddhartha strongly affirmed is that there is no soul. Who I am, who you are, is really just a series of combinations of ever-changing physical and mental activities that are happening in the same space, i.e. in your brain and body. Um, And he talked about the fact that there are five aggregates that make us up. And those aggregates, if I can say, are the matter and the the thinking. And there's no doubt a complexity to this, but according to Siddhartha, you attach yourself to the world and to the idea of a self, even though there is no self. I just want to say that again. Um, There's no sense that you are a person, if I can put it that way. You are actually not a person. You are just an aggregate of matter, of senses, of perception, of thinking, of consciousness. These activities take place, but there's no actual you. But because we want that, and because we have desire, we desire there to be a you. And what we need to do is actually rid ourselves of those desires and our sense of self. It's kind of happy, isn't it? You as a person don't exist in the sense of being a self. There's just an aggregate of feelings and thinking and perception. To put it another way, there's no smeller, there's just smells. There's no thinker, there's just thoughts. There's no listener, there's just listening. To think that you are you is actually a fantasy, is what Siddhartha taught. And it's born out of ignorance. To put it another way, your illusion. 
I don't know if I can say it any other ways, but do you get the picture of what I'm saying? And so what is the goal of life? It's not that we're heading to a moment in history where there's a new creation, but rather it's to nirvana. Now, do you know what nirvana is? It's a state of nothing. Now, if you don't think I'm accurate in saying that, let me read to you a quote from the Dalai Lama, one of the most famous Buddhists currently in the world. And he confirmed that once you reach the start of Buddhahood, nirvana, your mind is completely absorbed in emptiness. Now, why have this? Because, you see, that's when suffering is gone. Well, suffering is gone because all of life is gone. Now, I'll give you an example. Um, sex. Now, forgive me for kind of being blokey on this, but I was just thinking, where do we have strong passions? Now, no doubt, sexual drive is a strong passion. And I read some things on the... Uh, I was trying to find some stuff on the internet, and I read a uh, Buddhist monk from America... And he taught this at a Los Angeles high school. I thought, I wonder how this went down. His name is Kusala Bikusu. And he said, the big question is today, does the desire for sex always lead to suffering? And he said, the answer is yes. And so if it always leads to suffering, what do you need to do? You need to eliminate sex. And he said, for reasons that may surprise you, he said, the problem with sex, according to Buddhism, is not the activity of sex, but the desire for it. So the sexual desire of a human being will never ultimately be satisfied through sexual activity. So stop desiring sex. Now imagine that to a bunch of 15-year-old boys from LA County. Sure, that went down like, you know, great good news for the world. Now, I was tipped off on this by Kanishka when I interviewed him. And he said, oh, yeah, it was very interesting growing up going to temple. There were pamphlets on sex. He said, they weren't very encouraging. And I said to him, I don't think I'd make a very good Buddhist, Kanishka. <laughs> now, this is in very stark contrast to the Christian worldview that affirms that while we are flawed individuals by our sin, God has made us and he's created this world for us to live in and it's a good world. And we're to live under his rule as we trust in the Lord Jesus for forgiveness of sins and to actually enjoy this world. Now, here's the thing with desire. Desire is a problem, but you know what the Christian message proclaims? Not get rid of your desire, but rather God can transform your desires. Because having desire is not the problem, it's that we have sinful ones. And so what is the wonderful news of the Christian faith? Actually, the Spirit of God transforms our desire so that we actually want to glorify God and serve other people and enjoy this world rightly. Taste, affection, pleasure are God-given gifts to be enjoyed. Go home and enjoy your kingfish sashimi and praise God. Go home and enjoy. If you're a vegan, go and enjoy the vegetables of the world and the fruit of the world. Enjoy it. Go out for a surf and enjoy it and give praise to God. Simon Smart was talking to me about this issue. He directs the uh, Centre for Public Christianity. He said he interviewed an Australian Buddhist who was formerly a surfer. He's completely given up because he said it's a complete waste of time. And I thought, what a tragedy. Because, you see, this world is not to be worshipped, but it is to be enjoyed so we glorify God. Now, 
the Christian faith also says, yes, we do need to be reborn. But not eternally, just once. And that's the other wonderful news of the Christian faith. Actually, we can't make it by ourselves. We can't. That's what Buddhism sends you on this path of self-improvement. But the Lord Jesus comes, who is the Holy One, and he says, actually, come to me and I will make you new. You'll be born again in me. Not eternally being reborn, but once. So that you're transformed from the inside out and become part of my family. Now, friends, that is great news. And if I can finish with the Lord Jesus' quote, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Friends, the gospel is good news, particularly in the face of what I think is depressing news. But let's have a look, listen to Kanishka Raphael, the current dean of St Andrew's Cathedral. Uh, he's a dear, dear friend of mine. I studied with him. And uh, here's his story about coming from Buddhism to the Christian faith. I'm here today at St Andrew's Cathedral, and we're here to meet the new dean, Kanishka Raphael. Kanishka grew up in a Sri Lankan family of Buddhist background and was a practicing Buddhist until he became a Christian in his university years. And Kanishka has very kindly agreed to share with us his story today of how he came to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, Kanishka, you grew up with a Buddhist family. What was that like for you? Sure. Well, it was, a, you know, I had a, an ordinary sort of family, really, um, two sisters, uh, and uh, it was a loving family. Um, in terms of um, uh, Buddhist faith, uh, my mother's family were Buddhist. My father's family actually were Christian, uh, but we were raised as Buddhist. We learnt to do Buddhist chanting in the evenings before we went to bed. Uh, when the Buddhist temple opened in Sydney, which was 1975, the first Buddhist temple uh, in Stanmore, that became the place that we would go as a family and participate in Buddhist rituals and things like that. Now, growing up as a Buddhist, were you committed to it, intrigued by it? What was kind of your response to it, you know, as a young man growing up? Yeah. Well, the truth is I think that I had very little interest in it. Uh, I always called myself a Buddhist, so, you know, when it came to scripture at school, I'd say, oh, I'm Buddhist, you know, so uh, either that meant I didn't do it, or I did, actually. I, I did do scripture at school, even though I was Buddhist. Um, but I don't suppose I had a great interest until I got to university. And then when I was at university, I thought, no, I've always called myself a Buddhist. I should learn more about this faith that I confess. And so in my third year at university, I read a number of books about Buddhism. And what was the impact on you in terms of you learning about Buddhism? I think the impact was, well, first of all, I learned some things like the meaning of the words I had been chanting my whole life. I, the, the, the sort of Sanskrit words. I'd never known what they meant. And it never occurred to me to find out. <laughs> so that was, that was one thing. I learned something uh, uh, about uh, my practice. Um, I think I felt very comfortable with Buddhist ethics. Uh, it's a religion sort of based around compassion and wisdom, uh, you know, kindness to all living things. Uh, and it's also um, very committed to disciplined self-improvement. So I was happy with all of that. To be honest, uh, karma, rebirth, those kinds of metaphysical questions, I was a bit more agnostic about them. 
but it didn't worry me too much. I thought, well, if I die and I'm reborn, that's what'll happen. Otherwise, I suppose I'll rot in the ground. But I was, uh, I was committed to the Buddhist way of life, and in that year at university, my third year, I, I started quite regularly practicing meditation and consciously seeking to be a better Buddhist. Yeah. So, what led you to begin examining the Christian faith? Well, I had Christian friends, um, and uh, uh, well. We, I had a conversation with one of those friends. Uh, they suggested uh, that I read something. They didn't say what. <laughs> and when I agreed to do that, um, uh, Andrew, my friend, gave me Mark's Gospel and John's Gospel. So I wasn't that interested, but I made an undertaking to read these two Gospels. And so that's what I did. I, I just kept my word to my friend. And when I started reading John's Gospel, I was very surprised. Um, I was very surprised by two things. It, it sounded and felt historic. And I didn't really expect that. I expected it to be more like fantasy. But it, it, it had an earthy reality to it. So that surprised me. And the second thing that surprised me was Jesus. Jesus was a very vibrant engaging, intriguing, puzzling character. Uh, not at all like the Buddha um, from Buddhist scripture. And so, um, so I found that I was paying attention to what Jesus was saying uh, in the Gospels. And this kind of started a, a process of questioning who this man was and what he was on about. So why did you become a Christian and leave yeah. Buddhism? Well, um, I think uh, I think I was convicted about um, Jesus in some way, and right at the beginning, I couldn't have explained it. But as I read the gospel, I thought this man is for others, and he is for me, but I am against him, and um, I began to ask myself, why are you against Jesus? And I really couldn't think of another, I couldn't think of a reason to be against him. But again, reading John's Gospel, uh, I came to John chapter 6, verse 44. Uh, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me, and I will raise them up on the last day. And that was very confronting because Buddhism has no idea of a last day. It's just the circle. It's just the unending circle of life and death and rebirth. And so Jesus was saying, no, there's a last day. And on that day, you meet me. So I found that very confronting. But also there was this unusual thing where, where Jesus says in that verse, uh, no one comes to me unless the Father draws them to me. And to tell you the truth, I was reading the Bible and thinking, oh, I think God's drawing me to Jesus. That's actually what I thought. And uh, so I gave in <laughs> and um, decided that I should follow Jesus. Fantastic. Buddhism understands that the human problem is a big problem. So, uh, as I said, there's a very serious attempt to 
perfect yourself. But the Buddha is said to have taken 500 lives to achieve enlightenment himself. So it's no easy task. And so uh, Buddhism and Christianity both see that there's a big problem. Uh, we call it sin, and we say it's about our separation from God. Uh, Buddhism um, uh, you know, calls it uh, desire uh, and says we, we've got to liberate ourselves from desire. Uh, but Jesus says, I have to liberate you from your sin. And um, so that, you know, that was a significant contrast. So not, not, uh, I wouldn't say I was depressed. Most Buddhists think that the Buddhist enterprise is quite noble. Mm. And it is. The question is, is it realistic? If there's only one life to live, Buddhism says, well, you're not going to do it in one life. If it's only one life, we need a saviour. I would say because in the end, it doesn't address our real problem. It has important things to say about the problem, desire, uh, the grasping nature of human existence. Uh, and it has good things to say about, um, about compassion. But it doesn't have a solution. The solution it prescribes for the problem is ourselves but we are the problem we need a savior so in the end it's not enough it's not adequate so when you read about the lord jesus dying on a cross for you mm. what impact did that have again i think when i first came across this idea it was puzzling um, for a buddhist you think Jesus is this beautiful person. How can he possibly have karma to die like that? It doesn't make any sense. Uh, but the sense that Jesus makes of it is he's not dying that way because of him. He's dying that way because of us. And when I understood that, it was life-changing. 